Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So you're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM and I'm sitting in a wonderful flat in Headingley, it's very beautiful, the winter light is pouring in and uh, I'm sitting with the poet James Nash. Hello James. Hello, it's lovely to be here and lovely to see you sitting in my room on a February morning. Yeah, absolutely. It's lovely to be talking to you again. And today we're talking about your new uh, collection with Valley Press, Heartstones, which is a lovely collection of sonnets. Uh, And I'm going to be asking you to read a few of those sonnets, but also, yeah, talk about the book. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lovely collection, James. Thank you very much. I mean, it was... um As I discovered with all my books, three years in the making, you think it's no time, um, but it's kind of two years of writing and then a year of fiddling, which I think some people might call editing and redrafting, and I think it's getting yourself in a terrible mess and then extracting yourself from it. But it's, it's, yeah, the last year of editing and redrafting I find the most gruelling, actually. Well, and if you can hear grunts, it's Dusty, the dog, who is sitting on James's... Uh, James is almost on your lap, but on the sofa next to you. I thought I'd better clarify that in case people hear interesting sounds and attribute them to us, James. Um, Tell us about the title, Heartstones. Two things. Um, We spent most of um, the two major lockdowns in Bridlington, where we have a flat. And um, my partner, David, um, has always, when we've gone for dog walks, found heart-shaped pebbles on the beach and given them to me, which is a very lovely thing to do. Um, But it also means that your kind of going out for dog-walking coat becomes weighed down with small heart-shaped pebbles. And then another thing that we noticed, we were up on the cliffs above Flamborough, um, I think in the first lockdown, and a boy, 18 or 19, on a bike was making a huge heart-shaped pattern with big white Flamborough petals on the beach. And both of those um, things um, inspired poems. And then I realised that what I was writing about were the stones in my life, the stones of Headingley, which are kind of grey, granite, um, beautiful Victorian suburb stones and then the stones which are often chalk white of um, the East Riding where we spend quite a lot of our time It's mm. a great title and I'm, in a minute I'm going to ask you to read the two uh, um, title poems if you would okay. and Heartstones also I suppose I thought rather crassly of of gallstones uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, I just thought, yeah, heartstones, gallstones. It works for me in that regard as well, in the sense that a stone is something in that regard, anatomically or biologically, medically, that sometimes sits with us and we tolerate, or that they're painful, or or, or they pass away out of us. 
yeah, there's that. And sometimes, of course, in shellfish, they turn into something else. And um, I was conscious that some of the things I'm writing about, um, cycling up Potter Newton Lane and contemplating my own death, were quite kind of grim, but also quite funny too. So I think out of the the stones that can be a little bit uncomfortable can come humour and um, uh, a, a sort of philosophical resignation. And some of this clearly is coming from um, me being um, 72 and 9 fifteenths or something. I'm very close to being 73. And I think that when you get to my age, um, you kind of, you, you're in the waiting room, not quite the actual next room, but the waiting room to the waiting room. And it makes your, um, your thinking and your um, way of looking at the world a bit sharper. Absolutely. And, and, that, uh, and that, uh, that, that comes through the book, but also, yeah, a lot of the joy and, and wisdom, if you like, of, of ref- the reflective nature of that age and, and what, you, what you make of all this, this mm-hmm. being alive here on this earth. But let's, let's, let's first of all hear those two um, poems, if you would. Yeah, the very beginning of yeah. the collection. Um, Yeah. Heartstones, number one. The incoming tide has covered them, fanned over, drowned the heart-shaped pattern of stones, made from beach pebbles and secured in sand, large white punctuation marks, the bleached bones of a dinosaur's toes, gathered, arranged, by a young artist on a bike with time he did not have, until all slowed and changed, to leave temporary signs in chalky rhyme. From our clifftop eerie we see it all, huge heart underwater, unmoved by tide. Can love survive whatever might befall, perhaps live on when other things have died? Just this. In slow erosion it is worn down, dissolving more each day, stone by stone. Heartstones 2. My jacket is weighted with all the stones you give me when we walk along the shore. Not heavy, more like a trove of old coins left by the tide. And I love them even more because you gave them. And maybe I think When I am away from these eastern seas, I'll be reassured by their heavy clink and the memories held by each of these. So, spring has come to the wolds. See it light, the hawthorn, with the sharp of acid green. The fields of frost after a clear cold night. Birds wheel as one to a rhythm unseen. And in my pockets, like the rising sap, pebble hearts clatter with soft hammer tap. Yeah, lovely. And I'm also intrigued by the image of the young lad making that sculpture. And I do think, I've, I, I've, I, when I've been wandering by the sea 
during this whole lockdown period, I've noticed on several occasions people have made, and there seem to be more of those sculptures about. And uh, I wonder <laughs> whether that's been some kind of lockdown f- phenomenon. I think so. And I had the feeling um, this boy on his bike um, was going to be up and down that coast building things. Um, And I think that, I mean, both my partner David and I spent lockdown doing... I was able to write and he was able to paint. And I think um, for many people, walking out in nature um, inspired them to do things, whether it was to paint make stone sculptures on the beach, or to write. And I also, I mean, the, 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 the collection feels very much about love, actually, and I, I'd like you at the end, when we finish, to read the last poem, uh, which, is, which moved me. But, to, yeah, in, in, the, there seems to be also the sense in the book of, of, of kind of quietness and, uh, and sort of watching and listening... I think, I think like many, many people that I talked to um, and many people dog-walking that we stopped and chatted to that we saw once and never saw again, um, in those lockdown periods, we were relishing the natural world in a way that we hadn't possibly stopped and looked in that W.H. Davis kind of way, you know, which I reference in the book, that, you know, we were looking at nature again and I was coming up with the names of wildflowers and birds and insects from when I was a swatty little 11 year old and knew all those things because of the observer book of birds and the observer book of this Um, and I think it was um, we looked at the world the world sort of slowed and we were able to look at it again in a different way and I think it gave people enormous um, pleasure to look at the natural world and be in the natural world. I suppose what you've done beyond that is to make something of that in 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 a series of poems. You've made something from your your obs- your observing and your listening. I think I think I again in the poems I mentioned that um, one of the poems is called Miniaturist, where um, I think I start off by saying I have become a miniaturist. Um, and it's um, the fact that I started looking at nature very closely from um, dew on grass and seeds to um, swifts in the sky above Flamborough Cliffs. And I think writers and artists are trying to make sense of what they see. And I think... I mean, I have, uh, I'm a kind of uh, Wordsworthy, and I always have a bit of Wordsworth in my head. It, he, he was the subject of my MA um, dissertation. Um, but, you know, the kind of um, the things that we can learn and the calm we can get from the natural world are really important, and trying to make sense of those patterns. But, of course, um, if you're writing nature poems, which I, as a... Um, a city dweller seem to have been doing quite surprisingly um, you're writing about the cycle of seasons and you're also writing about mortality um, there's no way getting around that so you know I'm looking forward like everybody else to spring but it's part of a cycle which will end in winter later on this year mm, we're back to age and 
and <laughs> decrepitude. <laughs> Venerability, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm interested in this idea of the miniaturist. And it, yeah, when you say miniaturist, is a miniaturist somebody who looks at the small things and, and draws, infers the bigger things from that? Or is a miniaturist somebody who creates small things? I'm not quite sure. I think a combo of the two. I think as a sonnet writer, and we've talked before about me writing sonnets, I I don't think there's a cure now. I don't think I'm going to be writing anything else. I have got used to a form where in 14 lines you examine something quite closely. Um, But at the same time, I have, in the last two, three years looked in more closely at things, things that, you know, I have things that are small and, you know, tried to, um, as I said earlier, examine them, make sense of them. So two things, writing in a miniature classic form, but also getting in close to things. And I think also with the sonnet, I, I mean, I, I can see exactly what you're onto there and what, what, what feeds you about the form. It's a there's something about the constancy of it through a book as well. Yeah. Uh, you know the next poem is also going to be astonished. It's, mm. it's kind of reassuring. There's something very uh, sort of comforting in a way about the 14 lines, about the rhythms. Uh, it's not, not in a safe way, but, but there's a kind of containment. You're held. I think I think that's absolutely right, and that's how it works for me. And I think if you're, if you're working with a classic form, you're trying both to... Um, keep to its terms and subvert it at the same time. Um, so, you know, I don't think um, Shakespeare ever wrote a fart poem, and I I was determined there should at least be one fart poem in there. Um, but, you know, in that way you're kind of subverting it. And I also think it doesn't take away the sting or the pain, but it gives a kind of shape to the sting and the pain of things. And when things can seem so shapeless and one's life can seem baggy and amorphous and the world uncontrollable, there's something about that, isn't there? The reassurance of shape and form. Yeah, a kind of Mozart, Bach, all those, the people who I listen to, Elgar, who give me shape and form. And um, they, for the 10 minutes you're listening or the 10 minutes you're watching or the 10 minutes you're reading... Um, you feel hugged by the the sense of somebody else making sense of the world for you temporarily, and then you look up when you're in the world again. You know. Yes, I do. Uh, let's let's have another poem, if you would. And um, the one I would re- love you to read is is Witness. It's on page forty nine in your hymn books. <laughs> Witness. Oh gosh, yes. Oh, I think this might even have an expression of faith in it oh yeah okay <clears throat> our trouble is my eyesight's so shared I'm, are you recording that I'm going to keep it too <laughs> no <laughs> witness I have become a witness to fences their framing of banks of flowers and grass how they offer us subtle defences between the cliffs and sea and fields and paths. They run along in lines ahead and behind, offering us the play of light and shade. A wren perches to let its song unwind from behind it 
the sun a shining blade. Now I look back at the fences I built in different stages of my past and see them clearly for what they meant, not impenetrable barriers that last, content enough to give them their full due, not tear them down, just let the sun come through. And, of course, there is an unconscious, unconscious until the moment I read that, reference to the Leonard Cohen um, song about the cracks let light in, or whatever the particular um, line from one of his songs is, because, of course, I am um, full of um, the lyrics of Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. How could I not be? I was born in 1949, you know. Is it the cracks let the light through or something? I can't yeah, remember. something like that. And, and also, it reminded me of, you know, in a felicitous way, um, of the Robert Frost poem um, about fences. Yes. Good fences make good neighbours, I think. is That's exactly right. I mean, I don't think it's possible. I mean, one of the things I've done in this book is actually allowed the poetic references to stand because my head is full of other people's poetry, um, some female poets, but, you know, we tended to learn at university kind of Frost and Hardy and Wordsworth, and, um, you know, so there's a bit of all of those. Um, D- Dylan Thomas, I'm, you know, I'm half Welsh, couldn't ha- not have a reference to Dylan Thomas. So I've been content to let those references stay near the surface, to kind of say, you are my masters, you know, you are the people who went before. It's also interesting what, <coughs> excuse me, uh, what you said about the unconscious processes of writing and how sometimes you only become, however you, much you edit or look over those poems, sometimes through reading something out like you did, then uh, you suddenly become aware of a kind yeah, yeah. of textures in it that you didn't know you were... Yeah. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I think it's interesting. I think any writer will recognise the fact that if they read something out aloud, they hear things in it that they don't um, hear if they read it on the page. The most uncomfortable um, demonstration of that is if you're reading something in front of 60 people and then you realise what's wrong with it and somehow you're listening to it with 60 eyes and ears. And um, it's a brilliant way of a bit of late editing, but it's a little bit disconcerting sometimes. But you do, sometimes, you're not aware of what you're writing about until you look at it later and, and see what's going on. Fascinating. Tell us about the illustrations. I mean, it's a beautiful book by, uh, published by Valley Press, Valley have published several of your other books, mm. and it's got some wonderful illustrations by Jackie Fleming. So tell us about the, 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 the place they have in the book for you. I think it's really, really interesting. Jackie and I have known each other. She lived in this street in 1979. I met her then. Um, and um, I always had an ambition. I was very conscious of her work with Leeds Postcards, and, you know, we share the same brand of leftist feminism um, and we're great mates. And um, I'd always had an ambition when I was growing up that she would illustrate one of my books. Well, this is the um, the second book she's done a cover for. But I also wanted to go a bit further this time um, and actually demonstrate 
um, in the drawings and the poems, the kind of um, the affection I had for the stones of the um, East, East Riding of Yorkshire and West Yorkshire. And I said to Jackie, could we have some more illustrations? Mm. And I sent her the poems, um, and she started drawing. And we came up with the most beautiful cover, which um, has a sort of shell and a, and a heart-shaped piece of pottery shaped by the sea and a fossil. And then she drew the most gorgeous illustrations, picture of... Um, Queen Victoria sitting on the edge of Woodhouse Wall looking slightly fed up. And that's a wonderful picture, a picture of the lions outside the town hall. And then, um, you know, some lovely pictures of a um, statue of Apollo. Uh, just lovely, lovely things. And I, th- I think they, she knows me so, so well. And I think her style of poetry and the poignancy of her drawings marry very well together so I was very pleased with how it turned out they absolutely do, they work beautifully the cover is lovely and also that kind of green yeah. is, is gorgeous, it's very, it's very ocean-y yeah. um, James I'd love to read I'd love you to read um, a, another couple of poems uh, the next one I'd like you to read if possible is petrichor which I, a word I didn't know I love that word it's a great word you it's could explain what it means but also uh, yeah read the poem if you would yeah we'll do which is full of uh, spring for me actually yeah I'm talking about yeah, spring yeah, and yeah. the coming of spring yeah I think it's just after yeah. witness mm. yeah. petrichor is the smell um, I think just before or just after rain um, and it's um when you can actually almost smell the rain in the air. And this is the garden in um, um, our, our, our place in Bridlington. Um, and I think I just had a conversation with my friend, uh, artist Kevin Hickson, who had just said that one of his favourite words was petrichor. And we both had a conversation about it, and then this poem emerged. I can smell the rain... A battery scent, last quiver in the leaves, strange stillness now, as we wait in the garden for the slant of raindrops to fall, each one soft and slow. Too soon for jasmine, this scent has power to stir my senses and intoxicate, bewitching so that the world moves slower as I sit out in the coolness and wait. Singing still in the ragged apple tree, a blackbird flies across me to its nest. I have no equal urge or need to flee, the first patter on skin, and I feel blessed. Later I go into the garden again for the damp, rich incense of after rain. Very lovely. Lovely poem and what a great word. And I love the battery scent. I mean, it's one of those things that poetry does, isn't it? it, it you, you know that. You know that smell and you've made me know it again in a richer way. I need to mention Edward Thomas. Um, I can't... Um, I haven't written anything that hasn't got a large dash of Edward Thomas in it. Um, so, Edward Thomas, as Welsh as I am, um, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure he would bless the collection. <laughs> um, we've got to finish shortly, sadly. But um, 
I'd love you to read one more poem. And, and we were talking about how, um, yeah, there's a lot of love. In, in a way, a lot of the poems are love poems, and uh, either to nature or to your partner, David, and, uh, and to, the, to the place, Bridlington, and, and to Headingley. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of love and tenderness in, in the collection, which is called Heartstones and published by Valley Press. I'm sure you can get it from the Valley Press website. Amazon. And, uh, and also, hopefully, other good bookshops. Um, but yeah, if you could possibly read the last poem in the collection, James. Okay. Um, this was written, um, a friend of mine, Millie um, Johnson, writes terrifically um, feisty and fun um, books we could call chiclet. Um, she sets them in Barnsley. She's single-handedly made Barnsley the romantic capital of Europe. Bye-bye, Paris. Hello, Barnsley. And she asks me to write a poem for her, um, uh, uh, the book Before Last. And this, this I wrote for um, the final poem um, in the book, which is called um, My One True North. And um, I changed it a tiny bit. Um, for this collection, but it also um, sums up quite a lot of my philosophy in terms of, you know, the importance of love, um, however it's shown or manifested. Pilgrims for Love Pilgrims for Love, we had travelled alone on separate journeys, crossing foreign seas, no compass to guide, no magnetic stone, just the stars' chilly glimmer in the dark skies. Hearts were at low ebb. There were many storms, searching the unknown with flickering light, nothing to hang our hopes upon, only dreams, adrift and shaken in an endless night. Then the sight of warmth in another's eyes was our landfall, the promise of a home, a miracle of finding no disguise, the breath of new love and no longer alone, pilgrims for love, finding the beauty and worth of becoming the others, one true north. Thanks very much, James. A oh, pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Inquiry into Climate Change, Episode 6, Wood. This last year I've spent more time with trees than I have with human beings, and they've been excellent companions. Strong, reliable, beautiful to look at, and good listeners. Friends not just to me, but also to birds, squirrels and insects. It's hard to feel lonely around a tree.
just wanted to point out to you yeah. a species over here. Um, so this grass here, you can see this very, very delicate grass. I'm in Pompburn Woods, a woodland trust managed wood in the Derwent Valley, County Durham, with Sean Atkinson, who's worked in woodland conservation for nearly three decades. That's called wood melic and it's an ancient woodland indicator plant. So you will largely find that in areas of undisturbed, continuously wooded woodland habitat like this. Woods and trees, I think, are just so important. You know, we have quite low woodland cover in this country now. It's on average around 13%, which is about a third of what it is in Europe as a whole. Obviously, they, trees soak up carbon. Trees are obviously one of the potential mitigations for climate change. But they also help us to tackle air pollution, so they absorb particulates, they produce oxygen, they can help with flood alleviation, so the right trees in the right place can help to slow the flow. They improve water quality, so you know along rivers they can filter out pollutants going into the water. I also heard they play an enormous part in lowering the temperatures in cities. So now where the summers are just heating up considerably and people are struggling. Yes, they do. So partly, obviously, they provide shade, but also through their transpiration, through the evaporation of water from their leaves, that actually has a cooling effect as well. Records reveal that for the first time, what is seen as our planet's lungs, the Amazon rainforest, is emitting more carbon than it absorbs. It's against this unsettling backdrop that I'm talking with the poet Pascal Petit, whose two latest much-lauded collections, Mama Amazonica and Tiger Girl, look environmental destruction fiercely in the eye. I think the trees, to me, are a mystery. I think we actually know very little about trees, that's the thing. They operate on a different time than we do. It doesn't mean that they're lifeless or unsentient. It just means that they're different. They move very slowly. But if you speeded it up, they're actually very active beings. That's one thing that I'm always trying to depict when I try to write about trees, because they're not those inert things, you know. So I think that we don't understand trees. And maybe they are the prime occupants of Earth, for all we know. Approximately 240 million years before human life appeared, the first trees were evolving, and they still carry a strong sense of time in their remarkable, diverse forms. The mysterious past, this fragile present, and an unknowable future. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, you feel like you're in another world altogether, yeah. don't you? Yeah, it's really shady and um, shade, yeah. the sound is muffled, so you don't hear the sound of the aeroplanes and the road quite so clearly, and you just yeah. immediately feel sort of enclosed in this kind of slightly magical little world, yeah. And I love this wood because it's got these twisty old oak trees, so it's got a really nice feel to it. So oak... And then the smaller ones like rowan and... Yeah, there's a lot of holly in here. Yeah. There's rowan. There's other parts of the wood. We'll see areas that are more dominated by birch. But beech, there's a lot of beech in this wood, which is why it's quite shady. It's a very densely shading species. 
And honeysuckle. Honeysuckle. Up there. Yeah, that's very lovely. That's right, yeah. yeah, very bonny. I think people see woodlands and they think, oh, they've been here a long time. Trees are very long-lived organisms. They're a very permanent sort of feature. And you sort of feel like there's something stable in the landscape. There's something that's that's doing okay. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that a lot of our woods are actually not in a very great state. Many of our woods have been fragmented so that you know development or or clearance for farming or whatever a lot of the remaining woods are actually quite small so they're very vulnerable to the edge effects of what's going on around them runoff of nutrients from farmland air pollution from industrial areas or whatever the core area of the wood that's actually not being affected by that can be actually really very small or even non-existent in a very small wood you know, our woods and our trees are under stress. And there's a massive increase in tree pests and diseases in this country over the last couple of decades, probably. I think everybody's probably heard of ash dieback in recent years. And ash sort of has a unique place within the woodland ecosystem. It has a particular role within nutrient cycling. It has quite alkaline bark, which supports particular ranges of lichens and so on that many other trees don't support so well. So there's no sort of exact replacement for it within the spectrum of our native trees. It's um, often associated, isn't it, with Yggdrasil, yes. the Norse yes. idea of the tree of life, the tree of the world. And if, yeah. if that dies, the world will perish. Yes. So it has, does have a great mythological weight. It does, yeah. it does. And that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? In Pascal's poems, there's a sense of myth-making, webs spun for self-protection and healing. One day, as we were going through the Amazon rainforest, and I was saying, please, can we go back to the big trees, which I love, we came across the giant kapok, which had fallen. And so this is the silk cotton tree. It's a tree that produces gorgeous rosy pink flowers and it's a kind of tree of life for the people there so I asked the guide why did it fall was it a lightning strike and he said no no look look at it it was absolutely covered with orchids he said it's because of all the creatures that live in her it's the orchids there are so many of them that it must have felled her so this is Kapok. It's only when the queen of the forest has fallen that we see how many crutches she needed to keep upright. Her mesh of roots pulled up the topsoil and it's shallow as felt. Where was she going in her walking frame? These buttresses and vines she leant against didn't help her move forward, and why should she? Here she had her portion of sun. There was the darkness of others. No, she moved upwards, turning her stiff body into a ladder to climb towards the leaves of light in their spiral groves. Her face so furrowed, no one noticed it. What burdens she bore to keep her back upright. The harpies in their heavy nest pressed on her shoulder. Capuchins inside her armpits. Tamanduas, toucans, trogons, 
all clung to her, and her skin had growths, a termite's nest, a beehive, tree porcupines dozed in her clefts, a jaguar slept on her lowest limb, and lower still, a bushmaster curled between her toes. The tree frogs in their bromeliad ponds multiplied every year, and always processions of army ants plagued her. But it wasn't these lodgers that felled her. It was the hanging gardens of orchids draped on her balconies like worshippers in a cathedral kneeling in pews, throngs of them drinking the rain that filtered softly through her stories like sacramental wine, their faces lifted to divine moths. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pascal. That poem is remarkable in the way that it expresses something about the fullness of nature that contains both beauty and terror, the complexity of things, the interdependence of things. Yes, it's like she's a, a forest in herself, the tree. I think that's what I love about her. And yeah. the orchids are pollinated by the moths. And even there's like miniature seas in all the bromeliad air plants with their own ecosystems inside. So she's almost like a tree of heaven. Mm. <laughs> and it's almost like there's, mm. there's planets mm. on each branch. Like trees, we are vertical beings standing upright on the earth, heads held up to the sky. We even share a quarter of our DNA. They are less unlike us than they might appear. There's been quite a lot recently written about how trees almost communicate with each other. Below the ground, there's a whole network of fungi, mycorrhizal fungi they're called. So these are fungi that grow in association with plants. So they might grow in association with the grasses and other plants, or they might grow in association with the trees. What these mycorrhizal fungi do is they help to support the trees and provide some nutrients to the trees, but they also create a network between the trees. And there's been some sort of suggestions that signals pass between trees through these mycorrhizal networks, which is really fascinating. And one of the things that I read was that when you go into a wood, the trees are almost kind of warning each other that you're coming. Well, I just absolutely love that idea, really, that, you know, that they're actually aware in some way that you're there. And I think it's very difficult for us to get our heads around that idea of trees being aware and having awareness, because it may be not the kind of awareness that we, we think of ourselves as having. How far you take it, I think, is up to you. But I think there's no doubt at all that there's a lot more going on below ground and within a forest than just individual trees standing there. Yeah, it's part of the animist way of thinking, isn't it? That everything does have a consciousness, has a responsiveness to everything else. It just makes you think about the woodland in a different way and almost feel more part of it, part of what's going on in that whole network of communication that's going on in, in a habitat. But they also, being in woodland or being near trees, actually has been proven to have really strong benefits for people's physical and mental health. The trees give off 
chemicals that actually make us feel better. Yes. You could go into a wood and feel as though actually the trees are doing something to look after you. Yeah, I believe it's supposed to lower cortisol levels, so it brings down your stress levels. It lowers blood pressure and also balances out blood sugars so it's helpful for people with diabetes i mean incredible things mm -hmm. yeah. that happen but the other thing that i love about it is that apparently scientists can't actually quantify these chemical compounds they can't pin it down you know we don't have to be able to quantify everything we can yeah. just go and experience it and feel intuitively absolutely I wrote this poem after noticing for myself the benefits of spending time among trees. Wood bathing. Even late in the year, you grasp the gift of it. Cortisol, blood sugar, pulse, settling as you walk and breathe in whatever the trees breathe out on a day bright as washed glass. The glancing spangles on a brazen sweet gum, hand span leaves trembling. Whiskers of pine glitter against your irises, a birch's ginger you want to photograph and keep. You, who can't keep track of your own breath, shallow and ragged with a mind of its own. Let this be enough, this organic exchange of oxygen and subtle odours no one can quantify. The Japanese call it wood bathing, shinrin-yoku, as if it were an art or a medicine. Take daily, forest, arbour, garden, park. But what happens when we cut down the trees we depend on? It's happening in this country and all over the world. The scale of the destruction of the Amazonian rainforest is deeply disturbing. This is Pascal Petit again, whose collection Mama Amazonica interleaves her complex family history with her experience of the Amazon. One of the most amazing sights of my life is looking down on the canopy the, all the different shades of green, but you also see deforested areas. So you see bare forest. In Mama Amazonica, I portray my mother as the Amazon rainforest because my mother was very severely mentally ill. And so I portrayed the Amazon rainforest as a patient, a mentally ill patient who'd been abused and raped, as my mother had been. So the two systems kind of were laid on top of each other. It is the poet's particular gift, you know, what the poet can do. The poet can, I think you use the phrase, weave a forest with two leaves. So from two very small things, you can make a whole forest. So out of just very small words, you can actually have a very strong and powerful effect. Yeah. I'm a witness, an observer. In Tiger Girl, I wanted to celebrate and explore my grandmother's Indian heritage. The world seemed to be on fire. There were so many forests across the world on fire. And when I went to Bandavgar to, to see tigers, I felt Bandavgar was safe from fire. 
And so I was writing about for the fire in the Amazon, in the Australian bush, in New South Wales and in California. But since then, in late spring this year, Bandavgar was on fire. So in this poem, Flash Forests, it actually came from an image that I found of an orphaned fawn actually huddling against a target practice that was carved as a deer. The ficus religiosa is the prayer tree of the holy tree of India. And it is one that the fruit bats love to hang from in roosts during the day. Flash forests. Just as an orphaned fawn will huddle against a wooden deer used for target practice. So I cling to you, my grandmother, while all around us the forests burn. It is I who turned the world ash Yggdrasil to ashes. I who watched on plasma screens as koalas charred. I, who saw sloths with rare ecosystems on their upside-down fur, cremated in backdrafts. Let me be your bat pup, and you can be my ficus religiosa. I'm hugging what's left. Aerial roots of your hair. I once buried my face in. I'll roost under your prayer leaves until the flames come. Pascal Petit, ending our wood episode. In Our Element is presented by me, Linda France. It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing North in association with Newcastle University and it's supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. Thank you for listening. Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM.
So thank you to James Nash for talking to us about Heartstones, his brand new sonnet collection with Valley Press. And thank you to Sonderbug as ever for giving us In Our Element a wonderful series, a ten-part series, which we will be broadcasting the entirety of over the next few weeks. You can catch up with them on the website. Uh, love the words if you go to chapelfm.co.uk. So finally, we're going to be talking to Fiona Gell, one of the organisers of Leeds Lit Fest. Um, and it's great that Leeds Lit Fest are back in these times. Um, I do apologise for the quality of the audio in this interview. We had a few technical problems. Um, but the first thing I asked Fiona was, how has it been to organise with partners a whole literature festival at quite short notice and in such uncertain circumstances. If I'm being honest with you, Peter, it's been probably, for me personally, the hardest year um, in the four years of LitFest so far. I think um, I think everybody's so very tired. Uh, there's been so much of the Nightcron uh, earlier on in the year uh, and people have just struggled um, everywhere. And I know LitFest partners um, have all been you know, either ill or they've got organisational issues trying to get everything uh, up and running. It, it's been extremely difficult for us this year, um, but I'm so proud that we've actually got to this stage. You know that we we've got the fourth Leeds Lit Fest up and running, and you know we're selling tickets, which is amazing. Oh, that's that's brilliant, and congratulations to you all for doing that. And so, I mean, are there any particular themes, or uh, uh, yeah, are there any particular themes or or sort of threads this year? Um, we. We kind of decided that we'd have a, a theme of sort of borders and um, kind of kind of crossing borders and breaking down barriers, that sort of thing. And there's also um, an environmental, bit of an environmental theme running through as well. Um, so you'll find lots of, um, especially in our children's festival day, which starts a week tomorrow. Uh, sorry, a week, uh, it will be the 26th of um, February. Um, they, uh, the children's events have a strong environmental theme um, and so we're hoping that that will you know, kind of uh, get young minds interested and um, bring them into sort of the literature festival that way. Yeah, so um, we're a partnership currently of nine uh, like-minded arts organisations within Leeds um, who all have sort of literature programming at their core in some way or another. Um, so uh, each year for the last four years we've come together, put, put together a programme and created Leeds Lit Fest and I think it came out of, of kind of frustration for, for many of us that many other cities, you know, some smaller than us, uh, you know, than Leeds have, have um, their own Lit Fest and we never did so um, it, it's been tremendous to get it going keep it you know it's sustained and um we're now sort of firmly embedded in the cultural calendar and i think what makes us different is that we are a partnership so each organization as, who, who are part of that partnership brings something different to the table um but also their own very personal identities and, and um ideas and, and individuality and and i think that reflects leeds as a city really really well so Leeds Lit Fest isn't a body that's sort of saying to the city, 
um, oh, you know, we think you would like all of this. I mean, and, that, and that's absolutely fine to do that. Um, but actually, it's coming more from a sort of an internal understanding of what the city is and what people might actually want to come to. So it makes us quite different. We're quite quirky as well. You know, we're known for a few quirky events and things and, and, a, and a sort of Leeds identity, which is quite difficult to define, but I think, I think we're there. You know, I think we've got that sort of uh, Leeds edge to things, really. So it's, it's, it's really exciting. Um, we try to bring in as many different um, sort of groups of people as we possibly can. So, for example, if you're a lunchtime worker, the Leeds Library has a series of lunchtime events which includes uh, like a crime fiction writer, Jacqueline Sutherland, um, Catherine McCormack is looking at women in the pictures, so how um, she's an arts historian and um, kind of looking at how we've been taught to see and value women. Uh, and then David Howe takes it to a completely different uh, element with extraction to extinction. So he's talking about how we've, we've mined the Earth's resources and, and, and kind of how that might, might go for us in the future. Um, so there's a whole series of lunchtime events going on at the Leeds Library. Five o'clock every day, we've got a series of podcasts coming out on different themes. And so, you know, if you want to engage with us digitally, you can do that too. And then there are some sort of bigger events. Um, for example, Carriageways Theatre have uh, the, the there is there's a Bronte cabaret, which absolutely and you know uh, excites me and, and completely uh, uh, intrigues me. Um, and it's done by Scary Little Girls, and uh, it's called uh, the full uh, I think it's called the full Bronte cabaret, an evening of wuthering delights. Hmm. So I'm looking forward to to being delighted in a wuthering kind of way. <laughs> Um, and then they're doing a, a second performance on Sunday of um, a salon of storytelling um, inspired by literary greats. So that's going to be really interesting as well. And as a contrast, but also a complement to that, for example, Commoners Choir, who, who I'm sure you know really well, led by mm. Boff Wally, um, are coming together with Harmony Choir, which is a choir of refugees. Um, and they'll be singing at Couchworks on Sunday at two o'clock in a special performance. So there's, there's all sorts of things like that going on. There's a load of stuff going on at Hyde Park Book Club. Um, I'm really excited about the Northern Fiction Alliance uh, Fair. So Northern printing uh, publishers and presses are coming to Hyde Park Book Club on, on the Saturday the 5th, and they'll be there talking about um, all sorts of um, things to do with Northern publishing. There'll be author readings, and you can buy loads of brilliant author uh, uh, Northern Press publications. So that's really exciting for me as well, because you know me, Peter, I'm, I really support local writers and, and northern writers in particular. So, so yeah, so I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to go to any and all of those. So the dates of the festival are Saturday the 26th of February, which is the start, uh, and we, we kick off with the Children's Festival at Leeds Public, uh, sorry, Leeds Central Library. Uh, and then we go to the 6th of March, Sunday the 6th of March, and so there's a whole, just over a week of um, performances and author readings, workshops, walks, all sorts of things going on. Uh, and if you go to the website, so it's www.leadslitfest.co.uk, all the programme details are there and all the event details and how you can book. We're also quite um, uh, active on our social media, so... Twitter's probably the best one to find us on, and that's at Leeds Lit.
Um, so there'll be a, a programme you can download off the website, so that's for people people's convenience really. But if you go to the venues that are taking part in the Lit Fest, so the Leeds Library, Carriage Works Theatre, Hyde Park Book Club, um, Public Libraries, the copies of the brochures will all be out. We're a little bit late, to be honest, um, just because of the, so many difficulties we've had with our print copy, but that should be, they, they should be getting out there on Monday. Um, and we hope people, you know, will understand why we're a little bit late with things at the moment. But we've done our best. And I think, you know, I think we've delivered a really exciting and varied and interesting programme uh, in fairly difficult circumstances, to be honest. So thanks, Fiona. Thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you, Peter. And uh, we hope to see many of your listeners at the festival. Thank you so much. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little. No, no, little. Per uscire